this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Hello, welcome to the FemCell Filmcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Bella. And today we're going to be talking about the 2023 Writers and Actors Strike. Yay! <laughs> yeah, so we're taking a bit of a detour from our current season. And in this special episode, we'll be talking about the history of the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, as well as past negotiations and deals between the unions and the studios. And then for the most exciting part of our episode, we're going to have our very first interview with Jonathan Fernandez. He is an American writer and producer and also a member of the WGA. He served on the board of directors for six years now and worked on the negotiating committee in 2011, 2014, and 2018. And he has a featured interview in the documentary Pencils Down, The 100 Days of the Writers Guild Strike. So, yeah, really, yeah. really cool guest, and stay tuned for that. But yeah. before we get too crazy, what have you been listening, or what have you been, what have you been watching, Bella? What have I been consuming? Oh my gosh, I just watched Shiva Baby, Shiva Baby, oh my gosh, sorry. Hell yeah. Shiva Baby last night, that was great. It's really, I thought it was, I thought my, like, have you watched it yet? Yeah, I've seen it. Okay, yeah, word, word, word. So I was like, I put it on and I was confused because I was like, damn, did I like fuck up the aspect ratio? So I had to search it up and I was like, oh, he did like, they did that on purpose, which I thought was really interesting because I think it really, you know, added to the story of just the the main character. I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but just how suffocating her life is at this yeah. point. Um, yeah, that movie is super cool. I love that movie. And it ended so good. I really like the ending. So I watched that. I've been reading a lot. I finished ContraPoint's like newest video essay about, it's called like the witch trials of JK Rowling. I talked about this in the last episode, but I'm bringing it up again. Um, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. I think he, she's such a, I don't know. I think the turf community is so like, I don't want to say interesting, but it's really, it is interesting to learn how they like, have developed their rhetoric against you know trans women and specifically yeah, trans women which is just yeah so i watched that yeah um, yeah turfism is weird it's weird i did an article about it for outright and like i don't know when when i was doing my research i was just kind of sad because i think like a lot yeah. of the a lot of their their anger and like exclusion is just coming from a place of like that seems like deep trauma of being like yeah. of worried about being like abused or being like like feeling unsafe in the presence of like you know men or whatever but like they're totally displacing that that fear and then also like I don't know on top of that I felt a lot of their their arguments were okay if you give them rights you know there's not gonna be enough rights for the rest of us and it's like <laughs> that's probably not how we should be viewing this like I think the the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the eventual future we want is rights for all. So like let's let's go into it with that with that goal yeah. in mind, I guess. I just don't know. It's such a limiting mindset. And and Contraboids brings that up too. She says like, you know, it it so this kind of like transphobia ends up just kind of becoming a structure of right the right wing movement movement. Which is so interesting as like if you're, you know, are calling yourself a feminist maybe you should reflect <laughs> of like where no. what politics you're aligning with 
but yeah, she's basically, you know, what you said, like it, it, they're taking their fear and rage towards familiar men. Cause you know, you're going to be the most, you're going to be abused by the patriarchy is by men that, you know, but then you're displacing that towards kind of this unfamiliar outsider, which is just like tends to be trans men and especially trans women, which is just, yeah, it's sad. And I feel like we'd all just be happier if we didn't limit our view of gender and sexuality and we were just, you know, allowed to, to explore how we want to explore and be who, be who you are. <laughs> Literally be who you are. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Controversial <laughs> take, I guess. <laughs> No, literally. <laughs> Keep that to yourself, Bella. <laughs> yeah, that's a that sounds like a good spread of videos. What have you been consuming lately? Okay, it's gonna be the same as last week. Literally just succession. But it's been awesome, Woo! guys. It's been so much fun. Yeah, I just like watch it at the end of my day. You watch two episodes, so I guess that's just like two hours. It's basically like watching a movie every night. And yeah, it's so good. I'm partway through season two. And yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I love Shiv so much. Shiv apologists yeah. <laughs> until the day I die. I love her. She can do nothing wrong. You mm-hmm. know, like polyamorous queen and <laughs> cuckolding sleigh. Yeah. <laughs> She's the modern woman we're looking for. Anyways, and Kendall, I know he's like not like the best person. But, like, I just want to swaddle him in a bunch of blankets so he never makes any mistakes again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you think? Because the way that season one ends, it's, like, replicating, I think, the Kennedys when one of the oh. sons. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Don't spoil it, Bella. What? Um, it's season yeah. one. It's season one. <laughs> But, like, what if someone, what if someone <laughs> wanted to watch Succession? I'm just, like, that was me. That was me, like, a week That's ago. true. That's <laughs> true. I just think my, I spoil a lot, and I don't know. You do. You do, Bella. I can't, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why. Like, every episode, I'm like, no, Bella, wait, stop. <laughs> I just feel like if it's, it's been out for I guess Succession hasn't been out that long, but season one's been out for a good amount. Yeah, I guess I just think things should, like, never, ever be spoiled, ever. Maybe that's the thing we disagree upon, which is okay, because as co-hosts, yeah, we don't have to agree on everything. Exactly, that's what makes our conversation so nuanced and, <laughs> and, and incredible. <laughs> but yeah, have I been seeing anything else? I've been listening to the new Billie Eilish song for the Barbie movie over mm. and over and over again. Not by choice, but because I work in a movie theater. And like, I keep having, I do, I do like cleaning at the end and I always come in during the credits and it's like, what was I made for? And I'm like, oh, I'm sad. I haven't even listened to that. I've only, I've been listening to the Ice Spice one. I've been like oh, dancing. Nice. Yeah, I know it has like a popping like soundtrack because their budget is mm. a bajillion dollars. Yeah, um. it's been <laughs> interesting. I think it's like rather like, I don't know, like the Barbie dream house thing and like all of the, I did, like, I said a tweet that, like, in a couple months, we're just going to have Barbie landfills because there's literally just so much, like, I don't know. They're yeah. producing so much, like, shit right now. Man, but, yeah, they totally um, are accumulating. I'm just thinking of Toy Story 3 right now, actually. I need to get my mind off of that. That, make, that movie makes me really sad. Oh, is that the one that's, like, when they're in, like, the incinerator? 
Yeah. Spoiler alert. No, I'm okay. That one's <laughs> fuck. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> but yes, they are in the, yeah, so they're in the incinerator and they're holding hands. And it's like, it gets really, really dark. And it like, is. Yeah. And yeah, and they all die at the end. And that's how Toy Story 3 ends, so. <sighs> that's so sad. <laughs> That's not that was how, how it ends, Bella. That's not how. <laughs> I forgot. I could have. I believed you. I haven't watched Toy Story three in forever. Why would you believe me? Why would they kill off their entire? I don't family? know. I thought they just made a dark turn. I don't know. How <laughs> would you fucking bananas? It was. Oh and it's Toy Story four, right? That's like yeah, when Andy goes to college. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just dumb. I'm just a <laughs> bimbo. No, no. No, you're right. I'm a bimbo and I'm smart. A smart bimbo. A smimbo. I'm coining that. I'm copywriting that. Go uh, for it. Yeah. And then, oh, I really want to see this next week. Like, I want to see past lives in Asteroid City mm. while they're still in my theater. Yeah. Got to use those free tickets up. And then I want to see... <laughs> They're gonna bring theater camp to my theater soon. Oh and fuck I yeah! See it so bad. Kristen, <laughs> we should go watch theater camp together. I've been wanting we to watch. Should. That. I also need to watch Past Lives in Asteroid City. I can't believe I haven't watched Asteroid City yet. I like love Wes yeah. Anderson movies. No, it's crazy. It's like I'm not on top of this shit, but I know I want to see Past Lives. So it's just like, like it's just yeah, it's just been sitting in my letterbox watch list. But yeah, literally, I'm not used to like, or it's been a while since like movie theaters have started to like put out like good movies again <laughs> true true what do you mean you weren't like super pumped for super mario bros and john wick whatever the fuck <laughs> john wick like five yeah <laughs> and like another mission impossible like okay how is tom yeah. cruise like not dead i don't know he's yeah he'd be stunting doing all the stunts i think it's because of scientology it's like yeah he's like literal he's doing literal like blood rituals and they have like the eternal youth fountain like the fountain of youth i feel like yeah i mean their building's pretty cool like i could totally imagine like a fountain of youth thing in there like i mean so real it's so beautiful it's like bright blue and like it looks like it's a feels like i don't know those old hollywood movies where they basically like make a little mini castle for like for like the wizard of oz to live in that's what it reminds me of anyways no word i agree with you (laughs) I love yeah. Scientology. <laughs> so yeah, I love when it. Our, like Scientology building photo shoot. Like, when is that coming? Like, whoa, <laughs> wait a sec. That's a vision. <laughs> we should network at the Scientology building. Yo, <laughs> we should. Okay. We're like, where's Tom Cruise? <laughs> yeah. Hey. Hi. Is he available for comment? Yes. <laughs> we want him on our podcast. Actually. No, <laughs> what do you think it's about the writer strike, Tom Cruise? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's it. That's what I've been enjoying. Heard. Yeah. So now that we've set up our media this past week, it's time to get into the history of unions and and labor activism in Hollywood, because it's actually a pretty interesting history. And there's a lot of different groups to to go over to understand what we're going through today. So yeah, Bella, take it away. Yeah, that was beautiful, Kristen. So basically, in the 1930s was when one of the unions, Screen Actors Guild, was founded. It was founded in 1933. Kind of what was going on during this time, we have the Great Depression. No one was getting paid. No one was eating. 
So a lot of these screen actors were getting salary cuts and they decided to unionize to have more power against the studios and make sure they were at least getting paid. Also in 37 was when AFTRA was founded, which is just the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, which is funny. I love that radio artists were are still a thing. <laughs> but so, but then SAG and AFTRA ended up merging in 2012 to just basically make a bigger union and be able to leverage more power against the studios. And then once we get into the 1950s, Yeah, things are picking up a little bit in terms of labor rights. I think a lot of the early unionizing was a lot about just, you know, healthcare, pension type of stuff, just making sure people had a minimum wage and and that type of thing. But as as things go forward, a lot of it becomes about this specific term phenomenon called residuals. Yes. And what what are those things? What are those? What's residuals? I'm so glad you asked, Bella. So basically, if you ever see like a TV rerun of like, you know, Friends for the thousandth time, people are getting paid for that whenever there's mm. there's new stuff being run over and over. So it, they're basically financial compensations that are paid to actors and like film and TV directors and writers for, for their work, like TV shows and movies that are just getting shown on network TV. And I guess the main idea is that if Friends is playing or like How I Met Your Mother is playing, that's taking away time from new content that new writers might be getting paid for. And so therefore, that's why there's... Oh my god, your, your cat, the cat is so cute. Sorry, my... <laughs> sorry, listeners. My cat is <laughs> screaming at me right now. Let me grab her. No, what? I love her. Well, now she's just now she's just running away. So she's just being Wait, a cat. What's her name? Her name is... Well, she's... Toulouse. Her name's Toulouse. She's... Come. She was named after Luce from the Aristocats movie. Oh, so, so cute. Yeah, I don't know. She's on my lap now. I don't know if you can see her. Okay. She's mega chilling. Oh, okay, I'm going to describe Toulouse for all who cannot see. Yeah. They are brownish, grayish, blackish cat with green eyes and a beautiful face. And really she's... enjoying some head scratches from Bella. Yeah, she's purring. I don't know if you can hear it. She might be kind of annoying this episode because she always meows. I'm house sitting for my sister right now, just, and so she always yells at my sister when she's working. But well, we'll continue on. So we're talking about residuals. Yeah, and so basically, yeah, when reruns are happening and different movies and TV shows are playing on the air that have already aired before, people are getting paid for that. In 1950, there's this new transition to TV. Uh, mm-hmm. Television's getting very popular, movie attendance is plummeting, and now that there's a lot of TV reruns, there needs to be residual payments. So at this time in 1952, reruns start to get their payments distributed out to, to writers and actors, in large part thanks to Ronald Reagan, which is a thing we have to very <laughs> begrudgingly admit. Uh, yeah, in his first term as president of the Screen Actors Guild, ran from 1947 to 1952. And so he his early career is a lot actually involved in in Hollywood organizing. Which is interesting that he's even involved in, in unionizing in the first place, because I feel like politically that doesn't align <laughs> in any other aspect of his presidency. The time I guess he turned did, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess he did one kind of good thing. Yeah, but like... Let's just forget. Let's just forget how. Let's already separate. Anyway. Word. <laughs> yeah. He was just a pretty face 
for the front. Yeah. Like, SAG. Yeah. So moving on from the 1950s, now that TV reruns are starting to like generate some more income for people, now in the 1960s, we have a writer's strike. This is going to be a writer's and actor's strike, which lasted 153 days. The main issue is basically the fact that some TV scripts, their residuals, when they were broadcasted in foreign countries, they weren't generating much profit or they weren't mm. like generating those residuals at all. And they were just cutting corners with that. And then one of the main, one of the main issues that was also negotiated during this time was the sale of post-1948 films to television, because at this point, no one was getting paid for work that was created before that point in time, because there was no unions quite quite brought up to, to have a safeguard for this. So the main result of this is actors and writers won salary bumps, they got residual payments for films released to TV, and this is some unrelated, but for the actors and writers, like individual workers, this is very important. They had the establishment of pension, health, and welfare funds. No, yeah. I think that's like very important, like in any industry, which is interesting going through this history because it is, as much as it is about like filmmaking and specifically the entertainment industry, it also just shows like how workers are very undervalued in society and the kind of things that, you know, the working class has to advocate for as far as just like basic health care and, <laughs> and yeah. pensions and welfare funds. But I think even throughout the, the kind of throughout this whole history, you'll see kind of the same pattern of, of writers asking for these very basic things and the studios wanting to give them less and less money. Yeah, exactly. And even so, like in this case, like even though they got the pension, health and welfare funds, the studios actually didn't really agree fully on on the pre-1960 film residuals, they only guaranteed residuals for movies made after 1960. And they had a one-time payout of 2.25 million for movies made between 1948 and 1960. Which, number one, small amount of money. Number two, there were a lot of movies made between 1948 and 1960. Even like for the time, I still think like that was probably like a huge ripoff, I imagine. Oh yeah. I mean like when I was looking at, you know, this this history at this at the strike at this time, the the WGA only got I think 1.2% payment of you know, the residuals that were coming in. So they're getting 1% of like whatever revenue is going actually towards the studio. Oh. Uh, yeah. Dang. Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, like movies made before 1948 didn't get any residuals at all. So I guess the entire film era just, the silent film era did just not, like, did not matter. Yeah. Yeah, fuck them. Fuck Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> fuck that guy. I think, I think Charlie Chaplin might have been okay. <laughs> he might have been. He He's was like the top of the top. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is also with, with specifically with WGA and SAG, there's still kind of a hierarchy of the of the workers that are involved. Like you have, you know, the the small population of screenwriters that are getting a lot of money and then kind of this whole, you know, maybe that's like kind of like the ten percent, I guess, if you wanna give it a number and then the <laughs> rest of the ninety percent of workers who are like kind of going from paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, exactly. So this is like the first like dual strike with both the writers and actors. 
And basically, they're negotiating with, at this point, the ATSP, which is the Alliance of TV Film Producers. But what we're going to encounter a lot more in this episode is actually the group AMPTP, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And so basically, they're the, they're the link between all the workers and then all the studios. And yeah, there's going to be like some negotiation but basically if this were like a hollywood movie they'd kind of be the big the big bad bad guy just like clutching money bags to their chest mm. not just some oversimplify it but yeah there's a there's a lot of downplaying of bargaining going forward. Um, oh totally i can yeah. just imagine the political cartoons <laughs> exactly yeah so i guess it, and then in the 70s we have another writer's strike this lasted about 100 days as well. But so there were still more salary hikes and guaranteed residual pay for things, movies on cassette and pay TV, which is also an, another kind of pattern that's happening is as, as you know, technology's evolving and then how, you know, the, the entertainment industry is transitioning to kind of catch up with that. Often the workers are kind of like left in the dust of like, you know, what does this mean to start having home releases and to start having, and then in the, when we get to 2023, it's like, what does it mean to have streaming services and how do the worker, how are the workers involved in that? But yeah, anyways, in the seventies, there was, it was still, they were able to get more salary hikes. At this point, the work was not halted for the entire 16 weeks. There were still independent producers who at that time were controlling about like 50% of the TV that was being produced. And so they signed new contracts with the workers and thus were allowed to get back to work. In the 1980s, things began to heat up again. While that Ronald Reagan is president, <laughs> it's a really strange trend of events. Time is a circle. We live in a loop. And then 1980, there's an actor's strike, which lasts 77 days. And then in 1981, there's a writer's strike, which lasts 96 days. And the key issue here was with the fast-growing home video and TV markets. So now that there's a lot of cassettes being sold, actors and writers obviously want a portion of the revenue that's being made from this huge home video market. The result of this is that there's a new contract that allows writers two formulas for calculating their residuals, especially when they're calculated for foreign countries. So there's the existing formula, which is $4,400 maximum for a one-hour show, and the new formula is 1.2% for producers' foreign sales. So if it's smashed mm-hmm. it in, like... Germany, you're going to get a lot more money. And also d- domestic residuals are also adjusted to a sliding scale that, that helps. Uh, that's directly linked to the show's performance. Yeah. I guess, so sliding scale, instead of getting like a, just, you'll get like whatever much money for this episode, it ends up being like, depending on actually how much that, you know, film or TV is yeah. getting, I think right? There's, yeah, I think there's still a baseline of like, okay, it's an hour, Four thousand four hundred dollars, like even mm-hmm. with flops. But if it does really well, you could earn like a lot more money an episode. Beautiful. Yeah. Interesting note is that at the same time, SAG-AFTRA and the American Federation of Musicians all went on strike. Also during kind of this nineteen eighties boom, actors ended up winning the industry's first pay TV concessions, but the musicians did not get anything despite striking mm-hmm. for one hundred and sixty-seven days. Yeah. 
Yeah, but 1980s are not over. There's still the 1988 writer's strike, which is 154 days. The key issue here was once again, TV shows that are being sold to like foreign markets. So they want to make sure they're getting money for their TV shows being distributed around the world. And the main result is that writers got more creative control over their scripts and they could reacquire original screenplays, their salary increased. And even though they weren't as successful with negotiating the foreign market residuals, they did have these other wins. And then once we get into, we kind of get into the early 2000s, we have the 2007 writer strike. And this is what our guest, Jonathan Fernandez, was actually very involved during this time. So key issues in 2007 for the writers were, again, compensation, including residual payments and, and how, at this point, how shows and movies are being distributed digitally. So at this point, the AMP, AMPTP, oh my God, all these fucking acronyms. But anyways, <laughs> the AMPTP had called for an end to the current residual payments due now to the rise of like online media. And so that is where we get the writers protesting in response for higher residuals. So the main result that the, the writers were able to get compensation for the ad-supported streaming programs, and therefore they increased the residuals for downloaded shows and movies. This had about a $2 billion impact on the California economy and is often credited with sending programming further into reality TV television clutches because at this point you don't have to hire writers. You also don't have to hire screen actors. <laughs> so it's a lot yeah. easier to, to deal with and it's not like reality TV stars are unionizing, which... Maybe they will at some point in the future. Maybe. I've heard, um, like, yeah, I've heard there's, there's a, like, people have been discussing bringing them into the fold, like, one of, like, as the union. Oh, um, how interesting. Yeah, but it is interesting how it, it popped up mainly kind of as, like, a, a scab union busting type of effort. Oh, interesting. Okay, so then now, you know, we get up to where we are now. This is the first dual strike since 1960 between, you know, the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild. In about March is when the Writers Guild negotiations began. They published this report called Writers Are Not Keeping Up. And they're basically just like talking about now the transition to streaming and how now there's still pay cuts and worse working conditions, which I'm sure is probably also like has to do with COVID, the pandemic. And there's also this now separation between writers and production. Writers seem to be kind of hired for the front end of the pro- of you know producing a show, and then aren't you know hired for the rest of the schedule. And it seems to be kind of overtaken by the showrunners. And I think the phenomenon they actually call it is like mini room instead of like you know a regular writers room. They have mm. condensed to like two or three people. They write a few of the episodes before it's picked up for, for production, and then as soon as it gets gets picked up basically they're fired and it's unfortunate because i think in the in like the past writers have been able to you know climb this kind of corporate ladder within the industry by Mm. first being writers and then producers and then showrunners for their own shows that they created but but now they're just kind of being fired and not getting to stick around to production at all which is leaving them high and dry and also just makes it difficult to to i don't know build a career basically yeah and it doesn't even really, I guess in the, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but in the sense of filmmaking, that doesn't really make sense because wouldn't you want the writers who created the original piece of work to continue to work with the set, you know? But whatever, they Definitely. just want to make money, I guess. <laughs> so now, so May 2nd is when the WJA 
announces that all the members of the union are going to walk off the job. So since then, there's been, you know, people who are in that union, which is a lot of the majority of Hollywood writers are just not writing anything. And the screen actors also have started. I, I feel like if you're kind of plugged into the, the film, what's going on with film right now, a lot of the actors have walked off of doing, you know, any sort of publicity. I think just recently the Oppenheimer cast like refused to do any more, I guess, advertising for the movie. And I feel like kind of the main takeaway here is just that the, the, the entertainment industry is constantly reacting to technology changes. We had the rise of television in the 40s. We have cable and then VCR and VGS, home releases and such. And now we have streaming and the internet, which is, I guess while in the 1960s, the primary concern was TV, now in 2023, I feel like a really big concern is AI. And there's kind of this uncertainty about how these very advancing tech is going to change the, you know, ability to write, you know, a story. And kind of the Guild has said that they want to make sure that their literary material, which is basically just, you know, the screenplays that they write, the outlines, can't be generated by an AI. And also very important as well is that source material can't be something that is then generated by an AI. And basically source material is just when, you know, studios hire a writer to adapt something like a novel or an article or anything else, any other sort of IP, just any sort other sort of intellectual property into new work to be produced. So a lot of these writers are, are afraid of being, of their work being replaced by artificially generated content. The screenwriter, Robert Cargill, who I don't really know, but he, he's known for writing Sinister and Doctor Strange. He tweeted saying that like, they're, they're worried that they'll be underpaid to rewrite the trash into something we could have done better from the start. So essentially just building off of something that EA generated and thus being very underpaid by the studios. They're basically just like worried on both ends that AI is going to compromise like the workflow of being a writer and also just like make writers incredibly expendable, just like treating mm. their, their labor is not very important. I think I saw the quote just like in the in the WGA's letter when when they decided to strike and they're they're frustrated that that the AMPTP has kind of forced writers into a position where they're now in this like gig-based economy where they're being yeah. paid as contractors basically to come in help out a script really fast and have like zero zero benefits, zero support and no job security just because they're another cog in the process of a production rather than yeah. a writer who was held on in the writer's room. Yeah. And it's very disheartening just as someone who's also a writer and it's like, and also I'm very interested. Like I do think AI is really interesting, but there's no way that it, it that it could take over the job of being a storyteller and like being emotionally connected to the story. I feel like you just lose that in the AI's. So it's really interesting. I feel like it's definitely just you see the focus of these studios being way more on building off what's going to be, you know, economically like prosperous because they're thinking like now we can just pump out show after show. But it very much lowers the quality of the kind of entertainment that we're getting. Yeah, definitely. And undervaluing the work that goes into that. (laughs) Sorry, continue. Oh, no, you're good. I, I don't think that, like, AI is going to, like, start writing all scripts all the time. But I do think what it kind of enables studios to do, at least from my perspective, is just, like, 
yeah, cut corners as much as possible and just like make being a writer a less stable job in general. Yeah, exactly. And it's been really interesting to see, you know, kind of the back and forth of this and be a part of the history. I saw a tweet recently that showed whatever, I think this was last week, showed, you know, the the deal points that the Screen Actors Guild had released and then the AMPT's response to that. And one of the things that really stuck with me that they rejected certain proposals, including meal breaks and rest periods, like, you know, that that would be insured by workers, but then the AMPT oh. were like, rejected. Like, <laughs> why? I don't even understand the like, <laughs> thinking behind that. <laughs> Yeah, can't they put like a little like dot 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 symbol at least like we're thinking about your rights at least like dang <laughs> people do need to eat. It's like so this is like basic like union stuff. Uh, oh, it is basic union That's stuff. Right. Which is, you know, Kristen, what does it what does it mean exactly to be on strike, especially if, as a screenwriter as a, as a actor? Yeah, I mean, it basically, as a writer, it means you're not writing any new scripts for TV shows or movies until the WGA votes to end the strike. I think there's yeah. a few people who are exempt from this. There's members of the WGA who work in broadcast TV, so like basically not the streaming stuff, radio, streaming news, online media, nonfiction podcasts, nonfiction TV, and they get to stay on their jobs because it's not like specifically involved in the streaming wars that are... Mm. going on and so that yeah so that's that's to do with the writers screen actors basically are not acting in new projects and basically what that means on top of everything is just hollywood is frozen they can't develop they're any shut down yeah studios aren't getting any new pitches for new ideas and new shows unless people are being scabs and regardless if they do get that project greenlit they don't have any union actors to perform so yeah, yeah, Hollywood is at a standstill. And yeah, we're going to talk to Jonathan Fernandez in a second just to learn all about what's going on on the ground floor of the strike and and yeah, what is the future looking like for the strike. Hey, Themself from the Future here coming to tell you that the audio is a bit different than usual in this next section. You might hear an echo for around the next five minutes and towards the end of the episode, Looks like there might have just been a technical issue with the internet, but we really hope you keep listening since we're about to learn a lot. Bye! Hello! As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we were going to do an interview with Jonathan Fernandez. Once again, he's an American writer and producer. He's a member of the Writers Guild. He was on the negotiation committee in 2011, 2014, and 2018. And he's also served on the WGA Board of Directors for about six years. Yeah, so we're really grateful that you, you know, agreed to talk to us. But I guess first, like how me and Kristen really like to start the podcast is talk about, you know, the movies or the books or whatever we've been, you know, reading and listening to lately. And then also if you want to just give like a quick introduction about yourself. Yeah, hi. So great to be here. I started my career working for Roger Corman, the low-budget producer who ended up writing and producing films for him, and then worked for Dino De Laurentiis, who has produced over 500 movies. I produced the film Breakdown with Kurt Russell and Kathleen Quinlan, and then started off as a professional writer. And I've been in the Writers Guild now for over 25 years. And I've been watching lots of great shows, and I've been watching The Bear and just loving it. And Jeremy Allen White, 
was in a film I wrote called Rob the Mob, where he played Michael Pitt's younger brother and just gave a great performance. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so one of those little performances, small performances, no little performances, but he had a small role and just really brought his scenes to life and what an amazing job he's doing now in the very Mm. Oh, that's so cool. And I love love the bear too. Did you finish season two? I did not, so please no spoilers. No spoilers? Apparently, I'm really bad about spoilers. Chris You're the worst about spoilers. I just like oh talking goodness. about it. It's so fun to talk about what I know. But yeah, so yeah. But okay, awesome. Well, thank you for letting us know. How, like, how did you end up becoming involved in the film industry? Like, did you study when you were in college? So great question. I studied playwriting, so did a lot of playwriting and. I was president of the Harvard Lampoon in college, and I met a lot of people who were going out to California to be writers. And I ended up getting hired by Roger Corman, and that was my film school. I learned how to edit. I learned how to make trailers. I learned how to write screenplays. I wrote the first film that was shot in the Soviet Union. So it was an American production. Mm -hmm. And in a film called Crisis in the Kremlin, I predicted the downfall of the Soviet Union. I got interviewed by CNN and NPR. They wanted to know how I knew what the CIA did Mm -hmm. not. Um, And then I've been going ever since. So I came out here and have been working and living in Los Angeles for a long time. Oh, how cool. And what what insight did you have for, for Crisis in Kremlin? I had, the insight was, I was told by Roger Corman, you have four English speaking actors. Come up with a story. So, <laughs> I, I had been a history and science major, and so I had studied the Soviet Union. So I don't know. I, I, maybe I put that to use. I have no idea. But it really, like, like you know, limitations are a great way to force you to be creative. So you know, that was a lot of fun. When did you um, join the Writers Guild? So. While I was working for Roger Corman, I also was writing and I wrote a script and I knew a bunch of agents and I didn't put my name on the script. I said I found a script from a newer writer and the head of ICM Features, Nick Reed, read the script and loved it. So that was how I got my first agent Mm. and... That was the start. So it was 1997. So a long time. That's That's awesome. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so sneaky. You didn't put your name on it. Well, I I didn't want to put the pressure on him that uh, that he would have to say, I hate your script. (laughs) Oh no, that's smart. No, I'm just imagining it as in like a scenario where it's like, oh yeah, like my friend really likes you. My friend has a crush on you, but who's the friend? (laughs) Yeah. Because I didn't want him to say that, yeah, my script was ugly and was never going (laughs) to, you know. That's that's my baby. That's my script. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I want you to think my child is beautiful. But it, but it wasn't like, you know, that was the first script that I got an agent with, but it was not mm. the first script I wrote. So that's mm. what readers or listeners really need to focus on, which is, you know, what I think people don't get the difference between an amateur writer and a professional writer 
is the professional writer knows how many rewrites you need to do. So mm -hmm. amateur writers think, oh, if I just get 120 pages down, then that's a script and we're good. But I've worked with, you know, Oscar winning screenwriters and, you know, everyone's first draft is a first draft. And there's a reason why they call it a shitty first draft. <laughs> it is a shitty first draft. Now you got to do the second draft and the third draft and the 10th draft. And when I say draft, people also think that I'm talking about, oh, we're going to change a line here or there. But mm -hmm. you need to really rethink it and what characters are working and how is your structure working? And you know what? My end of act two is not coming together. And the reason why my script is only 60 pages long is because I don't have a B plot or a C plot. And it's okay to have a bad first draft. Embrace your bad first draft, but just know that the way you're going to have to do it next is you're going to have to write a second, third, fourth draft. And I mean, tearing it down, you know, tearing yeah. it down to the studs. And that's what's going to make it good. You're not going to write a first good first draft, a good first draft. Your first draft's going to be bad. And the sooner you embrace that and the sooner, sooner you say, okay, I got to go to a second draft and a third draft and a fourth draft, then you're going to start getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. I've also heard that as a, if you're like partnered with a major studio, you sell your script to a major studio. Sometimes they pass your script to other writers to just like totally rework and revise. Is that a common practice? Have you experienced that? So the short answer is yes. Once you sell your script, you may be hired for a first draft or a polish or a rewrite. But after that, it's theirs. And I have for many years been an arbitrator. So in other words, one of the other amazing powers that the Writers Guild has is our members determine credits. So if I'm an arbitrator, I'll read from draft one all the way to draft 17. But there can mm. be 17 writers on a script. And who deserves the writing credit for that? So when you gave it to an agent, are they then the ones who passes it on to a studio? Like what is their role in the in that process? So I was a little different in that I was working in production. So mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, in charge of production for Dino De Laurentiis. So I was reading scripts. I knew most of the major agents. So I mm -hmm. personally had access to them. But people often ask me, Jonathan, how does one get an agent? And the answer I always say is go sell your script. Right. In other mm -hmm. words, if you sell something, if you find somebody who wants your script and they say, I want to buy this, it's very easy to find someone who will take 10% of what you've earned. So it's really not a big deal. The bigger deal is find someone who wants to make your movie, right? And you say, well, I don't know anyone. And the answer is you're at UCLA mm -hmm. and your friends are all going to be the assistants next year to agents and producers and all of those different people. And all of those people have one goal, which is find a great script, right? And so that's your job. Can you get mm. a job as a writer's assistant? Can you get a job as a PA on set? Can you get a job as the caterer? Any of those things are going to get you access to people who will hire you, either as a writer's assistant or in a writer's room or wherever you can find that opportunity. And then once you've done that, once you've sold something, once you've gotten hired, then yeah, it's not hard to find someone who wants to take 10% of what you've earned. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting as I've like kind of gotten more interested or like, I guess, more serious about working in film. It's you 
can kind of create your own path into it with like how the industry is made. Yeah. And, and, and you guys, you know, you're in college right now. One of the great things about being at a place like UCLA is go put on a show. They've got, they've got stages. Go get a stage, go get mm-hmm. a stage, write your own play or put on someone else's one act play, work with actors, see how that goes. Go do that. Then Go make a short film. All of those are experiences you can do when you are in college. You will have access in a way that once you graduate, it's going to be harder to find that stage. Now, you can still find a stage, you know, in a church basement, but you at UCLA or any college or university, they have those stages. Go use them. Go put Mm -hmm. on a play. You're going to have actors. There's so many wonderful actors. And never, ever forget that it's the directors, right? that create the stars, right? Mm -hmm. Dino De Laurentiis would always talk about why there were so many Italian movie stars in the 50s and 60s. And the answer is because there was Fellini directing them, because there was De Sica directing them. So all of those people created the stars, you know, Martin Scorsese, any of those great directors, Spike Lee, there's a reason they create a, a kind of company that they work with, a company of actors. And Go create your own stars. Go work with them on a stage in college. Go make a short film with them. You'll see it as soon as, you know, I, I see these student films at, at AFI every year. And every year there's one person you go, wow, that person has it. It's just this star quality. And yeah. I tell my students there, you know, like I had a table reading in the spring and this one woman just brought this character to life. And I said to my my student, make sure you become friends with her. She's a talent. Brought your character to life, but it happens by not being, you know, stuck in a room. It happens by being in the world, by mm. being the director, the writer, the producer. All of those different roles that are things that you all can do now. Yeah, I definitely agree. UCLA has been probably the best resource so far in my life. Just like getting on campus and realizing how many people want to create projects and would be down to like make anything. I don't know. I met Bella in this magazine (laughs) on campus and then I was like, oh my God, wait, this person would be a great podcast host, but I don't really know them that well. And I literally asked (laughs) Bella anyways and they said yes. So yeah. (laughs) Just jump in. Jump in, you know, go make your short film, go produce and write and direct your stage play. But that that experience you can get in college in a way that access is so great. So I think we should start, let's start getting into the, the 2008 writer's strike. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that experience was for you and how did you get involved? So I was a strike captain. I was the one in charge of the truck gate at Paramount. And what that strike was about was the internet. What people, what most strikes in the Writers Guild history are about is a new technology. And that technology could be VHS and DVD. It could be about television. That strike was about making sure that the Writers Guild had control over the internet. What do I mean by that? Well, it may be hard for your listeners to believe, but before 2008, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Mm. there was no streaming. It did not exist. And so the 
the studios told us, well, this is a little thing. It's not going to be anything. And you guys, maybe you guys in the Writers Guild will have access to it or have jurisdiction over it, or maybe not. Why does this matter? Well, as a member of the Writers Guild, I get health insurance, I get a pension, and I get residuals, right? So all of that happens because the Writers Guild has control over it. Well, there are other areas like daytime animation that the Writers Guild doesn't have control over, which means that those writers don't get the same kind of protections. So we wanted to make sure that the internet, i.e. streaming, would be covered by our Writers Guild contract. And so that was what the strike was about. And the proof that it was a big deal was the day after the strike ended was the day Hulu started. So oh, wow. it would be a big, big deal. So uh-huh. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, none of these streamers would be covered unless they were covered by a WGA contract. Now, why does a WGA contract matter? Well, let's say you go make your low budget film and let's say HBO picks it up. Well, you would assume you get residuals for that. Well, mm-hmm. unless your film was written under a WGA contract, you're not getting anything. Mm-hmm. So that's why even if you make a low budget film, you should reach out to the Writers Guild and they will tell you how to cover your film, even if it's low budget. I have met people through my work as a volunteer for the Guild over the years who've made low budget films that have gone on to gross literally hundreds of millions of dollars and they've made not a penny in residuals those protections, the residuals, the health care, the pensions. And that are, those, are, those are things that we have fought for collectively over the years and that we have won by sticking together. I also know that in, so as a part of the WGA, you did at some point were kind of a part of the like, you know, 7,000 or so writers who ended up firing their agents as a stand against the ATA. So what was that? Where, what, and what process of negotiation was that involved? Uh, we have a contract. The Writers Guild has a contract with the studios, the AMPTP, and that's who we're on strike against now. We also have a mm-hmm. contract with the agencies. So we mm-hmm. set up rules of what agents can and cannot do. And that contract with the agents had not been changed in you know, nearly 40 years. And so we wanted to sit down and renegotiate that contract. And in the 40 years, the agents had created this thing called a package. And so you think of a package and you think like, well, that's great. Like they're going to put a writer, a director, a movie star all together, and they're going to create this package, right? And that's what you hope your agents will do. Great. Well, what it had come to be was that the agents for doing that started taking a fee. Okay. And so in, 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 You think like, okay, well, they're going to take a fee. They deserve a fee. Well, what ended up happening was a lot of times the writer who created this may have gotten fired, right? And so what they would do is they would say it's actually more important to the agency, the package, than the earnings of any individual writer because Mm -hmm. they were taking a producing fee of the entire budget. Okay, so they were taking a producing fee of the entire budget of a television show. And the writer said, actually, that's not great for us because we want you to be negotiating a bigger salary for us as writers. Mm -hmm. But if you're the producer, you actually want to keep salaries low, Mm. right? If you're the producer of a TV show, you want to keep salaries low. Why? Because you want your profits to be higher. So there was a, it was a, it was a conflict between representing me and your job when you represent me as I, if, if, 
if I make $1,000, well, great, you make $100. If I make $10,000, then you make $1,000. This is all fabulous, right? That's <laughs> interests are aligned. However, if you're the, my producer, you actually want to keep costs low. You want to make sure I don't earn that much money because that takes away from your profits. And so that conflict was about packaging. It was about making sure that our agents, that their interests, their values were completely aligned with writers. So that was what that empowering our agents was all about. Yeah. What did you, I guess, what was the the fallout of this, of this movement and uh, what were the results? The results were the Writers Guild got rid of packaging. So now my agent can no longer be my producer. My agent can no longer take a fee. So the only way my agent makes money is by negotiating a contract on my behalf. So I want my agent to be fighting for every dollar, every penny that they can get from me. And it works out well for them because if they get me an extra $100, well, guess what? They get an extra 10. So we're in alignment. There's no incentive for them to keep my salary low. So that was in 2019, and now we're all the way up to 2023, and there is an entire new labor activism scene unfolding before our very eyes. We talked a little bit about the 2023 writers and actors strike again, but it would be super interesting to hear about how the 2023 strike kind of differs from like the 2000 strike, which you played a big part in. And what is your role in this strike look like? So my role is really simple. I am just a Writers Guild member walking in circles. Mm. So when I <laughs> my son, because my both my sons came and walked on the picket line with me and my, my one son, my younger son said, well, I get metaphorically, we're going to be walking in circles, but what are we really going to be doing? I go, no, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> We're really walking in circles. <laughs> so in circles initially was because the Teamsters have a very strong union and they will not cross a picket line. Teamsters don't cross picket lines. And so they were unbelievably supportive of us. And so as long as we had two people out there, the Teamsters agreed that they were not going to cross our picket line. So that's why we have a picket line. Now that the actors are on strike, it shut down every production. You can't have a production without an actor. So now it's kind of like a morale builder for us. And it's to show, you know, people that we are unified and we are. So I'm not in union leadership now. I'm not part of the negotiating committee. I don't have any like great secrets to tell you all. I, I, <laughs> the insiders are thinking. I, I will say that our union has unbelievably strong, honest, capable union leadership that knew chief negotiator is a woman by the name of Ellen Stutzman. She is incredible. Cornell Labor School educated, UCLA Business School educated. And I just have the highest respect for her. And our president is Meredith Steen. And she also is just one of the smartest people I know and tough and savvy and just a great, great person who's fighting hard for all of us. So I feel very, very lucky that we have such a strong leadership team. And I feel very lucky that we have such a great negotiating committee and board of directors for the Writers Guild right now. Yeah. You mentioned just like board directors and then negotiating team. What's like the inner structure of the Writers Guild? Is it those three sections or are there there more? The great thing is the Writers Guild is the most democratic organization you can imagine. And I mean, that's (laughs) all the democracy. It's 12,000 members. Everybody knows everybody. So if you don't know me, 
Or if I don't know somebody, you know somebody who does, they will call you up, they will tell you what they think. So it's great in a kind of direct democracy. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. So the board of directors is 18 people, nine are elected every year. And believe it or not, right now in the middle of this strike, half our board of directors is facing elections in September. Our entire leadership, president, vice president, secretary, mm. they're all running for re-election right now. And it's, it's great. Like if membership doesn't support these people who are running our guild, does not support the board, you can vote the bums out. So that's, <laughs> so for us, it's a, a very powerful democracy. That board of directors then appoints a negotiating committee. And in that negotiating committee will be some of the leadership. There'll be some board members. There'll be some They'll be the president, vice president, secretary, treasurer. And then again, because we're a, a very diverse group of writers, like some people write features, some do TV movies, some do one hour dramas, half hour dramas, some do late night television. There are people who represent each of those different diverse elements of our collective group. And so they tend to want to make sure that there's someone representing late night writers. They want to make sure that someone's re representing TV movies, they want to make sure there are people who've had experience working for Amazon or cable writers. And so all of those different writers get a seat in the room and they very deliberately try and make sure that all those different groups are represented. Great. I know you're not part of SAG-AFTRA, but do you know if they have like a similar structure? Um, they do. Uh, they're, I mean, they're even more diverse because they'll have, you know, branches in Kansas City, they'll have branches in Chicago. Mm. And, you know, they, you know, they have an even broader membership. So they have, I think, I, the number I saw was like 120,000 members. So huge. Mm. And so it literally ranges from everyone from Brad Pitt to background actors. So it's a very, very, like the needs of someone who has a recurring role on a TV show are very different than someone who has, you know, who works, you know, 20 days a year as a background actor. So they have to kind of deal with all those different things. And these contracts are huge. They're very complex. And they each, you know, have to, they have to take in the needs of all those different groups. And they do. Mm -hmm. That That's great. So when, when, like, I'm trying to like imagine, or I guess conceptualize like what negotiations mean between the, the union workers and, and the studios. So is it like kind of like sending emails back and forth? Is there like a, like somewhere where they meet with like the director? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just a silly like... question, yeah. No, that's a great question. And the first time I walked into the room, it literally takes place at a shopping mall in the valley. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> And there literally is, have you ever seen those pictures of like the 1970s Politburo in the Soviet Union? Like, no, where, I don't think so. Yeah, like, like the entire Communist Party is like at a long table and they're all oh. sitting there like looking grim face. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. like that. Okay. Oh, it's, it's, it's really painful to look at. And, yeah. and, and, and it's all these people telling you how terrible Hollywood is right now, how terrible mm. their businesses are, how, how awful, how no one could possibly make a penny doing what they're doing. And we're all just lucky to be doing this. And then like a year later, the profits come out and they've made it, made another billion dollars. So it's yeah. like, they tell you how terrible it is. And I mean, it's hilarious when 
you know, Bob Iger goes and signs a contract for $45 million to re-up and they're telling you it's a terrible time for the business. There's not a, <laughs> there's not a penny to be made. And the, the, the head, David Zaslov of Warner Brothers, has made $250 million last year, but there's no money for writers. Yeah. <laughs> <There's no money. laughs> it's a terrible, terrible time. And nobody even couldn't possibly find anyone who would do the job for less than $250 million. And we should all be very grateful that this person did that. Now, I would argue, and I, and I, I want to be really clear, I am a super capitalist. I believe in working hard. I believe in the capitalist system. I am pro-capitalism. But I think what people forget is that, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, this kind of magical time that everyone wants to look back on when Eisenhower was president, when Kennedy was president, there actually was a 90% tax bracket. Mm. 90%. If there were a 90% tax bracket today, people would be hysterical. Yeah. But the end is, it was a 90% tax bracket for people who made $100,000. We go, $100,000, that's so low. Well, actually, a house back then cost $3,000. Okay? So if we had a 90% tax bracket for people who made $20 million, $30 million, $50 million, we're saying as a society that, you know what? $250 million is not right for a publicly traded company. That how many workers could get $10,000 a year more? How many employees at Disneyland, how many Apple Store employees could get $10,000 a year more? And what a change it would make for us as a society, right? And yeah. by the way, Costco is able to find someone who's able to run their organization for $2 million. And as my, my brother-in-law, who's in the Navy, said, you know, it's not like Hollywood is life and death, right? <laughs> the Army and the Navy are actually bigger organizations. The U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, they are bigger organizations. It is life and death. And those, the, the admirals and generals who run that are making $180,000 a year. So somehow oh, they're able to find truly amazing people to run our U.S. Army, U.S. Navy for a fraction of the cost, right? Hmm. And so... Yeah. Why Hollywood salaries are so out of control, I don't know. But I will say this, when you look at the stock price of Paramount, Disney's off 50%, clearly Wall Street yeah. is reacting to this strike and saying, you know, not good. They're making a bad decision. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, why are Amazon and Apple, why are they so anti-union? Because, again, the amount of money that we're asking for is a fraction of what these CEOs yeah. make. And I think the bigger question then becomes like, well, I think it has to do with you look at Amazon and how they attack their workers in Staten Island who wanted to unionize. It really has nothing to do with us. It's these companies have bigger anti-union issues going on. And I think everyone needs to ask themselves like, well, how am I supposed to make a living if I work at Starbucks? How am I supposed to make a mm. living if I work at Amazon Warehouse? And the answer is, you know, unions help everyone's salaries help everyone get a better quality of life. And that's what we're all fighting for right now. Yes. Unionize. Yeah. As a sociology major, I'm like a big, like redistribute the wealth, like the bourgeoisie class consciousness, but which is why it's been very interesting, like exciting to see the writers and, and screen actors strike happening right now. Cause even though it is, and also cause I just love film. So it's interesting to, to see how that's going about, but I mean, it's such a visible 
I guess, industry. And you can really show, like, see the kind of discrepancies between, like, the workers and then, like, the CEOs. Who are and now, listen, like... One of the reasons why we're getting so much attention right now is because of the actors, the movie stars in particular, who are mm -hmm. supporting us. In yeah. other words, when it's a bunch of writers walking in circles. Nobody really cares. But when you see Meryl Streep or when you see Bette Midler or any of these amazing and talented people who are supporting us, suddenly it gets attention. And you mm -hmm. look at, like, if you're working at a Starbucks in Buffalo, you're not getting the same attention that a Hollywood movie star gets. And yeah. uh, just the difference I saw between the amount of media attention it was when the Writers Guild was on strike, but as soon as yeah. SAG comes out, it explodes. And so I think, you know, it's important for all of us what SAG is doing. And I have to tell you, Fran Drescher is amazing. And if you haven't heard mm -hmm. her speech, Google it. She's amazing. Like, like she kind of hits at not only what the issues are for us as in Hollywood, but what are the truth and what the issues are for us as American citizens. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to the visibility of it all. Um, I had one question with regards to, uh, you've talked about the Actors Guild, the Writers Guild, and I know there's a lot of other workers who are in like VFX and costume and maybe even like animation. And I was wondering what type of organizations they have. And since product, all production has stopped, you know, what, what does that mean for those smaller groups? Well, the brutal thing is it means that no one's working, no one's earning a paycheck. There is the Entertainment Industry Fund, which are loans for people who are, you know, may need help. So it's brutal. Like, I, I can't say anything else other than not working. And, you know, we work in a, it's a, it's a business where you get a job, you can be unemployed for a year. I've been unemployed for a year. It's brutal to, to have to organize your finances and go, well, I don't know when I'm going to get my next paycheck. One of the things that was said during this whole negotiation was, oh, we're just going to try and starve you out. Well, I can tell you that my last contract took over 14 months from when I closed to when I was commenced. So we're all set up right now. I've changed my finances to make sure mm -hmm. I can survive that. And I mentor young writers and one of my super successful young mentees, uh, she wrote for big shows, shows you would know. And I said to her, are you okay? Right. I wanted to make sure that like that she financially was okay. And the answer was she's fine because she's having to work as a mm -hmm. copy editor, right? That's how she's paying for rent. So even though she's in the writer's guild, even though she's written on two, three shows that you have definitely heard of, she was not yeah. making enough money to work without working as a day job as a copy editor. And so the answer is we can last forever, <laughs> right? We can last forever because the answer is people have learned how to make their finances work in an incredibly unstable mm. environment. So it's a, it's like, like that's why we're on strike. We're on strike for people like this young writer so that she can actually make a mm. living doing this. I'm really also very, I think it, this has also brought up a lot of, you know, concerns about AI. And I know the studios haven't budged like probably at all about not including AI, but I know that's a big part of the demands for the writers, especially. So I was wondering like where, 
kind of maybe just even just as an individual, like how do you see AI like coming, you know, being a part of the process in the future? So my basic problem with AI is AI doesn't create anything, right? AI scrapes the internet for other ideas and it copies them. So if you say to a chat bot or one of the image generating AI, paint me a picture of a horse in the style of Picasso, it's just mm-hmm. ripping off Picasso. It hasn't created Picasso, right? So it's just a giant plagiarism tool. And, you know, you can easily get a ninth grade level of writing out of a chat bot. If you've played with it, you know that's true. And so it's very easy to say, okay, there's a serial killer who's just been caught on Long Island, right? The Gilgo murders. And you could say, generate me a story about a serial killer on Long Island and do it in the style Mm -hmm. of Law and Order, right? And so it will write you an outline that I bet Mm -hmm. is okay, but it's just written off existing things and it's creating that. I think it opens them up to massive, going back to where we started, copyright infringement, because Mm -hmm. you're going to be doing that. And I think that that technology is probably here today. So I think it's really important that the Writers Guild fights that. And I think you're going to see AI affecting lots and lots of Mm -hmm. other industries, whether it's law, medicine, wherever, because... And I, I think, where do we stand as a society on that? So, yeah, I think it's really important that we're we're fighting that now. Yeah, no, I agree. And I definitely, I feel like, I mean, even just the studios not wanting to budge on the AI, it's like they, one, are undervaluing, undervaluing the writers. And I feel like they're also very removed from the creative process. Because you were even just saying, like, for a script, you're going through so many different drafts. And I feel like the studios are more, con- like, concerned now with, like, kind of pumping out entertainment quickly rather than like finding like quality things to do. Cause like an AI is not going to like have the ability to, I mean, they could go through a draft like a million times, but they're not going to like have the ability to have like different perspectives or to understand kind of the emotional, I guess, context of like the characters and stuff like that. But I think it's really interesting, especially as a communications writer. Cause we, we've talked a lot about AI recently, especially and then now, especially as like, ChatGPT has become so much of a more pervasive thing in in society. I mean, people are like cheating on their classes <laughs> with AI <laughs> and writing their cover letters. Yeah, people are writing essays and then not yeah. changing a single word of it. <laughs> That's yeah, bananas. So beyond AI and how that totally complicates like the role of writers in this process, we also know that streaming services, Netflix, HBO, and like. Amazon Prime have totally changed the market. And we were wondering, you know, like, do you think, like, what do you think is the future of streaming services? Do you think there's any chance they might, like, disassemble? Do you think they're here to stay? And, like, what exactly have they they changed in terms of production schedules? So Silicon Valley has basically come in to many different industries and hornswoggled people, basically kind of conned them into believing that, they're, they're the music man. They believe mm. that we're going to make the future bright and perfect for you. So they did that to the music industry and gutted, you know, the earnings mm. of musicians. They did that to taxi drivers. They've done that over and over and over again. And you can argue whether that's good or bad or whether the taxi industry deserved it. But Hollywood had a hundred year old model and the model was pretty basic. You 
make a movie, put it in the movie theater. People pay 10 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever they pay for it. The movie theaters make money. The studios make money. It then would go to DVDs, right? It then would go to like premium cable, HBO. It would then go to sell through. It would go to basic cable. It would go to get sold foreign. It would get sold around the globe. Each one of those times, Hollywood made money, right? That was a very good business for the last hundred years. Hollywood did very well. Along comes Silicon Valley, and in particular Netflix, and says, we've got a different thing. We're going to charge everyone $15 a month. And because we're charging $15 a month, you get access to everything. Well, that was Netflix's business model from the beginning. But think about what a deal Disney Plus is. For whatever their current fee is, on Disney Plus, you get access to every Star Wars mm. movie, every Marvel movie, every Pixar movie, most of the Disney movies, and oh, by the way, every episode of The <laughs> Simpsons, right? And share this password with your husband, mm. your wife, your best friend. You can share it with your kids. And your kids, by the way, even though you probably don't know it, they're going to share it with their friends. Okay. This is billions, billions, billions of dollars worth of production. Imagine if Audi or Mercedes-Benz said, yeah, we have billions of dollars of cars. And for $15 a month, you can drive whatever car you want. No, your, your, your spouse can also drive a car. Your kids can drive a car. Your kids' friends can drive a car. $15 a month, as much as you want. And by the way, when you're done, just cancel. It's fine. Just stop paying us. Give us back the cars. We're all good. How is that a business model? I, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, like I'm old enough that when my kids were little, I've got a stack of DVDs that I paid 20, 25 bucks for of Pixar movies, of Disney movies, and they're just sitting there. And I paid that for yeah. one film. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that, that is a wild business model. And like, is it well, like guess what? when you say a wild business model? <laughs> not short for it doesn't work. <laughs> I'm thinking about the AMC stuff, like AMC stuff when they first had the movie pass, and like you could see like nine movies a week. I love it. <laughs> and they like went out of business. <laughs> oh man, they like, crashed so hard in like a month. But yeah. What what's the yeah what's the catch? What's, yeah, so <laughs> what are the do the like? sorry? I'm also do how does then payment work for streaming services? Like, do writers get anything at all for something being on the stream? You do, but it, they're they're very yeah. very small. And the, the 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 difference was when Warner Brothers made a movie and it sold the the their product to a network, a television network. It was an arm's length mm. transaction. Again, what do I mean by that? It's the same thing I'm talking about with the agents. Warner Brothers, when it sold a movie to be aired on NBC, wanted to get as much money as they possibly could. It was an arm's length transaction. Therefore, as a writer, we would get a percentage of that. And it was a transaction that was a business transaction that was done with a, another company that would pay a fair price for it. Netflix when they buy your movie, it never goes anywhere. It streams around the world. It doesn't get sold. So writers don't mm -hmm. get those residuals. Those residuals are what keep us afloat. It would, what allows us 
to live in Los Angeles. It allows us to make our living doing this in a highly unpredictable industry. By the way, that's true for cinematographers. It's true for Mm. costume designers. We have this world-class industry that's ready to go, ready to travel wherever you need us at the drop of a hat. But it works because of those residuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up the episode, I think a lot of people are wondering how they can support the strike, whether that's from the picket line or at home. Well, the really basic thing you can do is uh, you can you can cheer us on. We always love people honking as you go by. That's a good thing. The basic thing anytime you see a, a picket line go up is don't cross it. You know, whether that's at, you know, your supermarket or if you see the maids and all the service people on strike at the hotels, don't cross a picket line. So that would be the biggest things I would say. And then the the other thing, if you know you're so inclined and you have an extra dollar or two in your pocket, is the Entertainment Industry Fund. You can Google that, and that's a great charity that supports writers. So those are the big things that I think anyone can do right now. Yeah, I've heard a few people wondering if they should cancel their subscriptions to certain streaming services. Is that also? So the short answer is the Guild's not asking us to do that right now. So there may come a time when they say, yeah, do that or don't go to the movies or whatever. But right now the guild has a strategy and the strategy is don't do that. And so I respect that. I will admit that in a moment of frustration, uh, when I heard we were going on strike, I did cancel all our streaming and the answer was nobody in my household seemed to notice. So it, it was Oh, okay. really? Oh yeah. my gosh. You can just return but, to yeah. the stack of 20 DVDs in the closet. Yeah. Well, but we, we've reinstated and again, there's that's not being asked of anybody. So no need to cancel your streaming. What, what would you say your advice for young filmmakers would be now kind of entering this? I would say my advice for the future is the same advice that Sam Arkoff all those many years ago gave me, which is go make your movie. And I think it's the most exciting time to be a young filmmaker because with your iPhone, with your laptop, you can go tell any story you want and you can create your own movie stars. And I think this is that time. And so whether you want to show it on TikTok or whether you want to make a feature length film, there's a space for it. And I think it's never been a more exciting time to be a young filmmaker. So I look forward to seeing all these films in the future. Yay! Thank you so, so much. Yay. Yeah. I think that, that wraps up everything, and I think that's a good, good place to end. So, what are you here for? <laughs>